Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll take a tour of historic Pensacola Village with buildings dating back to the early 1800s. We get a lot of wows and cools from the fourth graders. We have uh, several things that they, they can pick from when they do a fourth grade tour. The fourth grade tour is completely different from what the general public sees. It's more done to Sunshine State standards. Everything is set. We'll hear about Florida pioneer home remedies, including using kerosene as medicine. They take uh, a teaspoonful of sugar and pour coal oil, kerosene, on it. And you would eat that, and that would break up the inflammation in your lungs. A history of forgotten Florida literature, all ahead on Florida Frontiers. And Marianna Botafay actually lived here with her 13 children, as far as we know, at one point. Um, so if you can imagine a whole family living in a house of this size, it was actually a duplex. One family lived on that side and one family on this side in these two rooms. Dressed in period clothing from the early 1800s, Anna Stead walks us through the Creole colonial-style lavalier house built in 1805. I like to start out by pointing out this rope bed right here. There's ropes on the bottom. And they would use this little device right here to tighten each side, and they would pull the slack at the end to tighten the ropes. Um, the mattress was filled with um, Spanish moss that they would gather from outside and usually steam or smoke it to get the bugs out. But if you've ever heard the expression, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite, it came from this time period where they would sleep tight on the ropes and um, not let the bed bugs bite from the moss that they were sleeping on. Um, you'll also notice some cheesecloth that's hanging over the bed. They would um, save the scraps of cloth when they bought the cheese so they could cover themselves so uh, the, the mosquitoes couldn't get to them at night. And then over here we have um, a wash basin and a water pitcher and some lye soap. They made this lye soap by hand. Um, they would take ashes from the fire and strain it, and it would produce lye. So this was the soap they used. The 1805 Lavalet House is part of historic Pensacola Village, which is at the heart of a fascinating six-block historic district off Bayfront Parkway in Pensacola. Jim McMillan is museum educator at historic Pensacola Village. The first one, we offer um, a guided tour of four historical buildings, starting with the Charles Lavallee House, which was built in 1805. And that's going to give you the hands-on experience on how people actually lived back then and survived. It's not, you know, comfortable. It's not air-conditioned or anything. And you can see how the struggles of life actually persisted through that. Um, then they take you to the 1871 Door Home, which is a Victorian home. And you usually see two floors of exhibits in that home. And you can see how somebody of statue would have been here in Pensacola, Door family and the Barclay family being a prominent family at the time. Um, then they will take you to the 1832 Old Christ Church, which is the oldest Protestant church in the state of Florida still on its original foundation. 
Um, it started off as a multi-denominational church, and then it became an Episcopal church. Um, then they will take you to the 1890s Leo Rocheblade home, um, which shows you in a middle-class uh, Victorian home 20 years after the Dorr family, right when the port and the Industrial Revolution and all that stuff was really kicking into high gear. And you can see how mass production of furniture and everything made things more available to the middle class in the United States. We are here in the Lear Rocheblave house, and we are in their parlor. And during this period, this is where you would have welcomed guests. But this being a middle class home, unlike the door house, um, which is also 20 years older, um, I think this, is, this whole house is a great example to show how the middle class was on the rise. So if you compare the door house, which was an upper class home that was just 20 years earlier, um, this shows you uh, how the middle class was catching up. For example, um, the furniture pieces in here are all of a matching set. So that's an indicator of the Industrial Revolution and things being made um, on a mass scale. So it was easier to afford and easier to find matching pieces. Um, another thing that's interesting to point out in here is the curio cabinet. And this was a very um, typical thing in a Victorian home because everyone wanted to kind of show off all their culture and um, the things that they had. And um, these glasses here that say USN for U.S. Navy were actually um, Benito Rocheblaves, the owner of the house. And he says that he got them off of the USS Maine. So we're not really sure if that's absolutely true, but that's what he told people. And I think that that's a good example of the purpose of them, just to be a good conversation starter when you had guests over. So I'm sure it was a good story that he used to tell. So... Um, Another thing uh, we could point out in this room is this piano. It was actually just a practice piano that his daughter would have used, and um, she could take it with her wherever they went. And it didn't actually play music. It was just so she could learn the keys. So it was a good way to practice without disturbing everyone. Nancy Cox leads us from the front parlor to the rear of the 1890 Lear Rocheblave house. We are in the Lear Rocheblave's kitchen. And compared to some of the other homes on the tour, this is a very modern kitchen. Um, but they still didn't have a refrigerator like we do today. And what they would have used is an ice box. So the way this would have worked is you would use um, this sign that indicated how much ice you needed. And you'd put it in the window. That's why it's located here in the back of the house, right by the back door. Because the ice man would come right to your house, right to the back door, and look in the window and see how much ice you needed. And then they would use... Um, these ice tongs to put the ice in, in the top of the ice box and then underneath here is a door that opens up like a refrigerator door and so everything underneath the ice would stay cold and like like a refrigerator and then underneath there would be a pan that would catch all the water that would drip from the ice and that would be one of the responsibilities of one of the children probably to empty the pan um, regularly so that it didn't flood your kitchen. Historic issues and themes such as economic development and changes in family life are explored by traveling through time in historic Pensacola Village. Jim McMillan. In the Lavalet house, you'll see basic living. It's a two-room house, basically. You have two families living in it. You know, and you can see the one bed, the mattress stuff with Spanish moss, which of course we know has red bugs and sugars and stuff originally in it. They'll talk about the candles and the lighting source, how they were made out of animal fat and all this stuff and the hardships that those people were basically facing. And as you progress through the tour, you'll see how advances in technology and stuff actually progress. When you get to the uh, door house, you'll see a feather stuffed bed. When you get to the Lear house, you actually have springs in your bed mattress by that time. You know, so there's gradual um, increases in it that allow people to have an easier life more than what we have today. You'll see how uh, social norms have changed, you know, from Lavalet House not having a dining room 
to the door house having a dining room but with very restricted use to the Lear house that actually has a dining room used not quite as we use it today but still used more often than it was in the door house. You'll see gradual changes through it which help open up people's eyes to like whoa you know the good old saying that the good old days were really good and they really weren't you know they were clearly kind of hard. Since the homes in historic Pensacola Village are set up with period furnishings and artifacts, you must be accompanied by a tour guide inside the homes. Outside, part of the Living History program includes volunteers tending active gardens. Directly adjacent to historic Pensacola Village are a series of informative museums. We have the Museum of Commerce, which is a streetscape of Palafox Street downtown Pensacola, starting in the late 1800s. And as you work your way around the building, you end up in the 1920s, 1930s. So you can see how the actual street changed over time with architectural uh, changes, transportation changes, and everything. Um, we also have the Museum of Industry, which covers the three major industries in Pensacola at the turn of the 20th century. Um, Pensacola at the time was a boom town, so it covers the brick making, it covers the uh, seafood industry, it covers the lumber mill industry that we had here. Um, we also offer the Julie Cottage which was also built in 1805, um, owned by a free lady of color. Um, the house inside, though, represents 1865 and shows you how a middle-class family might have lived um, during the Federal Reconstruction period after the American Civil War. And when we say that, that, you know, we like to bring light to the fact that they were state senators, congressmen, and, you know, that were put in positions that were African-Americans at that time. Um, we also have the Barrios Cottage. It was built in 1888 but we represented as 1920s Pensacola living. So you can see how the 20s were here in Pensacola as well. We do have the T.T. Wentworth Museum. Um, it's a free of charge admission for that one. It is three floors of Pensacola history. The third floor is the Kids' Discovery Zone. It's a little Spanish village set up around 1800. The kids can actually dress up as soldiers, merchants, and Indians, whatever, and play and learn history at the same time. And then we have the Pensacola Historical Society. A museum was in the Arbona Building, built in 1885. And it's also a two-story building with Pensacola historical artifacts inside. Nancy Cox takes us through Old Christ Church, built in 1832. It is the first Protestant church in the area. Um, before Andrew Jackson came down and um, made Florida part of the United States in the 1820s, um, this was a Spanish area, so it was a predominantly Catholic area. Um, so after a few years, more and more Americans were moving to the to Pensacola, and so they had a need for a Protestant church, so they built Old Christ Church in 1832. After a few years, it became um, an Episcopalian church. Originally, it was a non-denominational um, Christian church. Uh, originally, when the church was built, the altar um, was right at the end here, and the where the altar is now was a separate vestry building. And after the Civil War, during the Civil War, the Union actually occupied Fort Pickens. So the congregation here and a lot of people in town evacuated the area. So um, they actually burned a lot of the city, the Confederates did, in order to prevent the Union from utilizing any of our resources. Um, one of the only buildings they didn't burn was this church. So they actually utilized this church during the war, and when the um, parishioners returned after the war, it needed a lot of repair. So the way it looks now, we've actually have it restored to the way it looked in the 1870s from when the parishioners repaired it. So they extended it, they added the stained glass, and um, made it look the way it does today. The six-block area that includes historic Pensacola Village and the museums around it was built directly on top of the site of a Spanish fort. 
As Jim McMillan explains, the Colonial Archaeological Trail identifies where remnants of the fort have been uncovered in the yards of the homes. There was a fort here built in 1753 by the Spaniards, um, Fort San Miguel. Um, of course, it changed its name to the Fort of Pensacola when the British were here and then went back to the original name once the Spanish came back. Um, the fort was made out of wood, so you can't see the barriers, but we did do an archaeological dig and found actual uh, foundations of buildings that were here at the time. So you can actually walk through that trail, which we have a map for, and you'll see the actual foundations of buildings and historic sites within that fort. The fort occupied maybe three, four blocks wide, three blocks uh, to the north and east, south. So it's a pretty decent-sized fort that was here. In addition to visits by the general public, Historic Pensacola Village hosts thousands of fourth graders annually, many who are getting their first exposure to Florida history. We get a lot of wows and cools from the fourth graders. We have uh, several things that they, they can pick from when they do a fourth grade tour. The fourth grade tour is completely different from what the general public sees. It's more done to Sunshine State standards. Everything is set. Um, they actually get to experience a musket being shot off. They get to see that, and they think it's really cool. They see colonial fire being made. Um, with the steel striker and a flint, you know, it's better than rubbing sticks together, but it's still not easy to do. Um, we get a lot of positive feedback from the kids. They learn about economics and trade. They learn about life. Um, it's just really, really good for them. They really enjoy it a lot. Historic Pensacola Village is open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and is on the web at historicpensacola.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. You can join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to purchase great Florida books, find out about upcoming events, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. Pioneers had some very effective home remedies, but sometimes the cure was as hard to take as the ailment. It's doubtful that even a spoonful of sugar could make kerosene go down easily. 
Janie Gould has more. When most Floridians lived far from doctors, kerosene was often the best medicine. Audrey Hobson, Joyce Crouch, Wilford Underhill, and 10 other brothers and sisters grew up on a farm along the Kissimmee River. They say kerosene practically worked miracles. One thing on a bad cold, before you about pneumonia time, they take a teaspoonful of sugar and pour coal oil, kerosene, on it. And you would eat that, and that would break up the inflammation in your lungs. Did you say sugar with kerosene on it? The reason they use the sugar and the kerosene is kerosene would have done the same thing, but if you you got strangled on the kerosene, it would have killed you. So they'd put it on that sugar. That way you could eat it, and you wouldn't get strangled on the kerosene, coal oil. And when we would get a cut on our foot or any place, Mama would get the kerosene. And she would pour it on that, and it would heal it. And also, if the kids step in the hot ashes, from we'd always have a yeah. campfire, kids would step in the hot ashes, burn their feet or whatnot, or if you got burnt from the uh, stove, you take motor oil, and Daddy would pour it in a pan. And like if it was a kid's feet, they would pull their feet in that motor oil, and it would draw every bit of the heat out of it. Did that happen to you? Oh, yes, this happened to me, and I distinctly remember it happened to a, a niece. And did it work? It works. And then another thing, this happened to me, and it happened to my youngest daughter. She got a fish hook in her foot. Of course, we taken the fish hook out, and that night it got infected and started swelling, and she couldn't sleep, throbbing. And what we did, we taken a piece of bread, put two pieces of bacon on it, and a copper penny and tied it to that foot and <laughs> in a little while that baby went to sleep and when we pulled that off you could see the corruption where it had drove the corruption out of there and uh, healed up and never no more problem. Cooked bacon? No, just raw. regular old raw bacon. White bacon. And the copper penny on that bread, I guess that was to hold it and the bread was to absorb the corruption that it pulled out. But I mean, if you leave it on long, It'll draw so much, it'll start hurting you. You'll have to take it off. So there was no way to get a tetanus shot, but that did the job. That did the job. A fish hook or a nail or anything that would cause a, an infection or anything, that would do the trick. Where did your mother learn that, do you know? I have no idea. It's just one of those old things that handed down from, from the old timers on down. Did you ever see a doctor when you were growing up, any of you? Uh, yes, we did. When uh, Welton. That was before any of us here was born. She had typhoid fever when he was a baby and almost died. And after that, every year or however often, Daddy would take us to the doctor in Frostproof, and we had to have a shot. And that's the only time I remember going to the doctor. The rest of the time, home remedies did the job. You always had kerosene because your lamps and, you know, some of the heaters and stoves run off of it, so you always had cooked it. off of it. Too. Mm-hmm. Electricity didn't come to your farm until no. when? I went in the Navy in 1950. Along then, we got electricity, electricity, and they run a telephone line in. Wilford Underhill, Audrey Hobson, and Joyce Crouch are among seven surviving children of William and Mary Magdalene Underhill. The couple was born between Frostproof and Fort Meade in 1888 and 1893, respectively. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. When I became a full-grown man, I 
said, don't you think it's about my time? I became a full-grown man. I said, don't you think it's about my time? She held my hand so nice and said, a spoonful of sugar make your medicine taste fine. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Just as some uninformed people regard Florida as having little or no history, Florida literature is often dismissed as nothing but Miami crime fiction or the novels of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. In fact, we have the oldest body of literature in North America. Bill Dudley has more. There clearly is a pattern of disrespect that exists. Florida literature is, to a great extent, the Rodney Dangerfield of American literature. We just don't get that kind of respect out there. Dr. Morris O'Sullivan is head of the English department at Rollins College in Winter Park. We have the richest, most diverse body of literature in North America, but people don't know it. And I think part of what we need to do is figure out why people don't know it and address that. Part of the problem is found in our state's long history and the number of different people who've lived here. The first poem about the peninsula, A Lament, was composed by a French Huguenot in 1565, describing his unhappy experiences with the Spanish. Even by this time, La Florida had already been written about in detail by early explorers. Think back to that first poem, 1565. We are at the heart of the Renaissance. Little Billy Shakespeare is having his first birthday party. And from then on, the literature continues to expand. By the time Jamestown was settled, we had an extraordinary anthology of work, which included, among other things, Alonso Gregorio de Escobedo's La Florida, based on the five years he spent at the Nombre de Dios mission in Florida. And it is a 21,000-line poem. Obviously, Father Escobedo had a little too much time on his hands, 
By the time Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote about Florida after a visit to St. Augustine, called for a distinctively American literature and clearly located that literature in Boston, we had 250 years of literature about Florida. In the century after William Bartram published his first celebration of the Florida wilderness in the 1790s, literature about Florida sprang from a diverse group, including Emerson, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John James Audubon, and even Davy Crockett, who wrote about his adventures with Creek Indians in the Panhandle. Julia Buckner Armstrong teaches Florida literature at the University of South Florida, St. Pete. So many great writers, so little time. One could spend an entire semester on Spanish exploration literature. You could spend an entire semester on American modernists in Florida. You could spend an entire semester on books written about the Everglades. There's just plenty, plenty out there. Florida literature encompasses the poetry of Wallace Stevens and Elizabeth Bishop, the novels and folklore of Zora Neale Hurston, and the mysteries of John D. MacDonald. The only two Pulitzer Prize-winning novels about Florida were Marjorie Canan Rawlings' The Yearling in 1938 and James Gould Cousins' Guard of Honor ten years later. O'Sullivan says another problem is the number of great writers who have lived here but are associated with other parts of the country. For example, Tennessee Williams, who spent several decades wintering in South Florida, but never wrote about the state. Even though Ernest Hemingway lived in Key West and wrote the only novel he set in North America in Key West, he's not really thought of as a Florida writer. Robert Frost spent 30 winters in South Florida, and yet I spent about a month going through every line of every poem by Frost. And there were only a couple of lines set in a graveyard written when he was in Florida. It would have been a stretch to make a case that they were in Florida. But even with the number of writers who have inhabited the length and breadth of Florida, from Cross Creek to Miami, from Eatonville to Key West, there seems to be no one genre, with the possible exception of crime fiction, that's closely associated with the state. We have an extraordinary body of writers, but it's very difficult to categorize them. Generally, if we're reading a novel written by a Mississippi Delta writer, we have a pretty good idea what it's going to be like. If we're reading a novel by a Florida writer, we're not quite sure. We want Florida literature to be seen as something as distinct as something that is a, a valued and valuable part of American literature and something that's worthy of discussing on its own terms. But for now, given the cultural, historical, and natural diversity of Florida, this may be a long time in coming. Even though diversity has become a mantra in almost every community, people really hesitate when they have to deal with real diversity. And our literature is literature in multiple languages from multiple communities. And I think that raises too much of a challenge. This, this area has the potential to change not only our sense of Florida literature, but what we mean by American literature. Consider, for example, what questions or issues would be raised by beginning a survey of American literature with the first explorers and settlers to come to North America. And I mean the people who came to Florida, not the people who came to Jamestown and Plymouth Rock. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Bill Dudley was just speaking with Morris O'Sullivan, co-editor of the book A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parker's Condit, 
published by the Florida Historical Society Press. It's available at myfloridahistory.org. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, and we hope you'll join us again next week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.